Welcome to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast where we simp for the Netherlands. I am Jason from Not Just Bikes, and I'm joined today by Brandon from American Feaster. Hi, Brandon. Hey, NJB. How's it going? <laughs> Excellent. So good How's to have you. How's that new truck here? working out for you after that uh, <laughs> million follower thing? <laughs> you know what's really funny is that I have posted... Have you seen the price of gas? Not to interrupt you, but come on. <laughs> Oh, I love it. You know, this is even funnier because you used to be a truck owner, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much. I still like the things. I just got myself canceled. And that's the podcast. So uh... <laughs> Thanks for coming out, everybody. <laughs> Actually, I mean, your story is fantastic and we can get into that. But maybe just for the listener, I'll give a little bit of context here. So Brandon has a Twitter account and YouTube channel called American Feetzer, where he talks about being a Feetzer, somebody who does utility cycling in the United States. And you live in Carmel, Illinois. Indiana. So in Indiana. It's the same thing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Same thing. <laughs> and you're not originally from there. We could get into this. But what's interesting is that you and I used to chat and respond to each other's tweets on Twitter before I had a YouTube account. Mm -hmm. So you're like one of the OG orange pilled and I didn't orange pill you. You did it yourself. You. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm the guy that, you know, I liked the band whenever they were playing small clubs. Exactly. And now they're, you know, huge and everybody likes them. It's not even. <laughs> and it was it was so funny. I was going through my old tweets in the process of deleting them. And I found my original tweets from saying, hey, guys, my Twitter followers, I've started a YouTube channel. And it got like two or maybe three responses, and one of them was from you. Mm -hmm. So yes, we've been chatting together on Twitter for a very long time. And what I wanted to talk about today, or at least start the conversation with, is the transformation that both of us had by coming to the Netherlands, because we both grew up in car-dependent places. We both were typical of our genres, if you will. I was the typical white-bred Canadian suburbanite, and you were the Typical, correct me if I'm wrong, pickup truck driver in the South. Yeah. And somehow the Netherlands changed us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Changed us is almost an understatement, I would say, especially for me. But yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you discovered the Netherlands, how you discovered, I guess, Bicycle Dutch too, how you went to the Netherlands and what that experience was like for you. Let me do a TLDR on my background. So grew up in... The middle part of Illinois family had a farm there. I worked in agriculture for pretty much most of my life. So I was driving pickup trucks, diesel trucks, pulling big trailers, nice tractors, combines, semis. And I still have a CDL to this day to hop in a semi if I want. So windshield time basically made up my life, all types of windshields. And, you know, being raised in the cornfields, you kind of get influenced by your surroundings and, you know, you develop a mindset and form opinions and everything like that. So, you know, if I saw some dirty cyclist out on my road, <laughs> I would just get this irrational, like, anger in me, like, you know, get off my road, go do your sport, go do your exercise somewhere else. You don't belong here. You know, they don't even pay any road tax. You know? Exactly. I mean, yeah, <laughs> using my roads that I'm paying for with my diesel fuel <laughs> and then it would even, you know, pour into other things like the topic of cities. Like, okay, I don't want my tax dollars going up to Chicago to pay for their transit system and their socialist bike lanes and all that kind of garbage. And also in my mind, it was just, a, okay, that doesn't work. You know, I mean, we can't move a ton of people by expecting someone to hop on a bike to go to work or take the train to the next city that I was so disconnected. I mean, 
How do you even buy groceries? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's nuts, right? How are you going to haul $200 worth of groceries from Costco on a 10-speed? Tell me about it. Idiots. (laughs) Complete idiots. So that was my background. Now, let's just fast forward a little bit. I did live abroad. I lived in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And that did not change my opinion of cities or transit. I mean, because it was still pretty much a car-centric hellhole down there. As much as I love Brazil, it's gone the way of the car almost in the same way that we have. But here we are, August 2017. My wife has already been going to the Netherlands for work somewhat regularly. And she asked me, hey, do you want to go with me this time? And to be honest, I knew almost nothing about the Netherlands. I wasn't even really interested in Europe. I don't know why. But I just said, no, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll go. Booked a ticket. And she had already been there, so I came over by myself. So here's how it went. Get on the airplane. Land at Schiphol in Amsterdam. Get off the airplane. Go through immigration. Grab my bags. And then here's where it gets fun. I literally just go downstairs and get on a train. And so far, I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I ride that train for an hour to a certain boss. And then during that hour-long ride on the train, I'm just thinking, okay, I'm probably going to get off the train, get out the train station, and, you know, look around and be like, okay, no, I'm not walking this. I'm not dragging my suitcase. I'm going to call an Uber or something like that. Well, this just unfolded minute by minute. You get off the train, you go down, and you look around, and sure, there's some cars, but there's people walking, there's people biking. A bus came through. And other people are dragging suitcases and heading towards town. And I'm just thinking, can I actually walk to where we're staying? This is nuts. So I just started walking. Imagine that. Ten minutes worth of walking, dragging a suitcase. I'm where I need to be. Never touched a car. Never thought about a car. And that's where it started. That one experience right there. And then I was there for a week and a half. Never hired a car. I didn't bike at all in the Netherlands the first time. Yeah, neither did I. It was just walking, taking the train, and I think some of our friends who live in Elmersfort picked us up and drove us around because that's what you do in the suburbs outside of Elmersfort. (laughs) But yeah, I had that experience and I came home and I think my subconscious just took over. I started thinking about all that, how that worked and how did I just go to another country and I didn't need to rent a car. I didn't use, I don't know. It was kind of mind-blowing for me. And that's when I just started diving down the rabbit hole and learning more. Ordered a Dutch bicycle. I just went full stupid. And yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. That's where the education started. Where did you get that information when you came back? I assume you went on the internet. What kind of stuff was out there? Because, of course, my channel wasn't around at that time. That's right. So, man. It's going to be Twitter Mm -hmm. because I don't even know how I came across Bicycle Dutch. But of course, he's one of the first people that I started learning from and really consuming his media and found his YouTube channel. And somehow it all took off from there. And once you seems like once you picked up one source, Twitter would recommend others. And so I just started following other institutions, the Dutch Cycling Embassy and not the Bruntlets. They were still in Canada at the time. Yeah. But yeah, it just started snowballing and I just started basically finding things to teach myself about how this whole place worked. And how long was it before you went back to the Netherlands after that for your second trip? Almost two years, 2019. Mm -hmm. And by then I had really just upped 
everything, learned more, and I was, oh, geez, I think I was two Dutch bikes in, had a Gazelle, sold it, and bought my first work cycles. And so I already had two Dutch bikes, and I was starting to get groceries and stuff like that. And by the time I went back, I was set up, ready to cycle and really do some like, you know, bike train and all that type of stuff. So 2019, yeah, it was about two years later. And even then it wasn't like in 2019, my Twitter account, I just still had my name and I think I had like a hundred followers or something like that. So, right. Yeah. I remember how you used to be really big on the work cycles. And I remember you made a joke about being like work cycles ambassador and people were like calling you out for it saying, I ah, paid off by work cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The internet is fucking dumb. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, because I was just showing them off and talking about them all the time, like I was starting to get DMs and things like that. People saying, oh, I ordered one because of you. And that just happened over and over and over. And I thought, I'm renaming myself here. I'm a, yeah, I am an ambassador here. I'm done selling these things. And the funny part about work cycles is that Henry Culler, the owner, he's American. Yeah. He went to the Netherlands in the early 2000s for work. And he looked around and he said, you know what? I can build a Dutch bike better than the Dutch. And here we are with work cycles. That's pretty bold. You're not riding uh, work cycles anymore, right? I think you've moved on. Yeah, I had to slim down and I kind of wanted to. So... As you know, I'm big into e-bikes, especially e-cargo, and I think that those are the band-aid that we need over here in North America in order to get people on bikes. If regular acoustic bikes were going to do it, they would have done it back in 1989. Everybody would have been on bikes by now. Yeah. But they're not good enough. We have too much sprawl, too much garbage infrastructure. We need e-bikes and e-cargo bikes specifically to make it easier. Americans want things to be easy. So Canadians, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get them out of a car, you got to make it simple. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I see people online often saying, well, let's look at what the Netherlands did back in the 1970s. And I just cringe every time I see it because I'm like, that would have been a great thing to do back in the 1960s or maybe 50s in the US. <laughs> but like trying to do what the Netherlands did in the 1970s in 2023 America is just not a good idea. Like, it's just not going to work at all. There needs to be, like, different solutions there. And I think you're absolutely right. One element of that is that e-cargo bikes are going to be way more important there than they are here. I mean, you see them here mm -hmm. quite often, but I think they're more critical there. And for exactly the reasons you said, look, stuff just isn't so close together because it used to be a lot of it was bulldozed. Now there is sprawl. Mm -hmm. So you were living in a rural area. You went to the Netherlands. You really got orange-pilled there. By the Dutch. Yeah, I got orange suppository by the Dutch. I mean, it, it took. Didn't have to take another one. Right. <laughs> you were taken care of with one shot. <laughs> You're not living in a rural area now. So tell us a little bit about where you live now and why. Yeah. When all that happened, I was up in Minnesota and I changed places where we lived a few times. I wound up moving closer to Minneapolis. I was in Minnetonka and that's where I really started to after I added a knee assist to my work cycles freight and I started to just do as much as possible, even through winter, getting groceries and everything like that. But eventually COVID hit and my wife's company said, hey, you're free to go wherever you want. You can have 100% work from home. You don't have to be up here. And we were looking very hard at actually coming over to the Netherlands. Mm, yeah. Got pretty close to it, but we eventually both just said, I'm really tired of international moves, especially after the Brazil thing. We just wanted to keep it simple. 
So the only reason I knew about where I live now, which is Carmel, Indiana, back in 2011 or 12, there was this show called Man vs. Food. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so, not where I was expecting the story to go, but. <laughs> yeah, we're going there. So this guy, he traveled all around the country taking on food challenges, right? And he came to Carmel, Indiana and did one at a place called Bub's Burgers. And he like a whole bunch of these massive burgers. And, you know, we lived only like a couple hours away back where I'm from in Illinois. And I said, I want to go over there and I want to eat at that place. Those burgers look good. <laughs> and so we drove over here. It was 2012. And I didn't care about any of this stuff. Right. I didn't care about walking or cycling or urbanism or anything. But I remember getting out of the car. And this place is next to the Monon Trail, which is our major rails to trails in the downtown I got out and I looked around and I saw all these people walking. I saw a bunch of people biking and I recalled that it was kind of quiet and tranquil. And I noted that in my head. I just was like, oh, that's kind of nice. Okay, there's that. 2012, we're done. Fast forward to 2020 when we're looking to move somewhere and I remembered, hey, remember Carmel, Indiana? Of course, now I cared about biking and urbanism. So I got online, Googled it. And I started to see all these photos of the development that they were doing to make their multi-use path infrastructure and everything like that. And it all started to look really, really good. Looked like probably one of the best places to try to live car light in the Midwestern U.S. We got really lucky, built a house here, moved here, and our car sits in the garage, collects a small layer of dust on it. I take it out maybe once or twice a month to go to a different town to get pizza and recharge the battery. <laughs> but otherwise, we do probably 90% of everything, day-to-day -day life, e-cargo bikes. This morning, I went to the chiropractor on my e-cargo bike because I'm an old man. Last night, I went and got groceries. It's just so simple. I don't think about it. I just go down, get on the bike, head off, go do my errands, done. Don't even think about the car. So I have never been to Carmel, as you could tell, I didn't even know what state it was in. And sure. <laughs> but I've seen pictures and that kind of thing. So it does seem very unique, even just on a worldwide level with that level of roundabouts there. But certainly for North America, it's very unusual. How does it compare to like other cities in the U.S.? Oh, geez, this is where I piss everybody off. <laughs> you know, geez, that's a really good question. It's hard to answer. I feel more threatened riding my bike or just being in another place and thinking what it would be like to ride my bike in other U.S. cities, large and small. I mean, Carmel's only 100,000 people. Right. It's not huge. But as I've traveled around, I just thought, you know, assess the infrastructure and thought, could I ride here? Could I live like this in this city? And I don't get that same feeling that I do here. There's lots of bike parking here, except for the few cases where the network is not connected. There are no on-street bike paths. It's 100% either multi-use path, a shitty sidewalk, <laughs> and we have like <laughs> one planter protected stretch that has these big old planters on it. And basically it was a road diet where they took an entire lane away from cars and gave it to people biking. And I actually like the design, but it feels really good. There's a lot going on here. I mean, Carmel claims to be a city for people, not cars. Like the mayor has actually said that, the mayor who's actually retiring, and they make an effort. But 
they still very much put the car in Carmel. <laughs> and you see it in their roundabout designs. We've got double lane roundabouts everywhere. Their traffic engineers are just, oh boy. <laughs> their traffic engineers are traffic engineers. And yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of problems. But the city is still ridiculously enabling if you're willing to put, you know, a few percent extra forward in your effort and have the right bike to help you out and everything like that. So, yeah, we're pretty happy here and we're saving loads of money by having our 13-year-old car just sit in the garage and the e-cargo bikes do everything. Cost savings is, I've never calculated it, but that's one of my big motivators. That was one of our original motivators as well. There was a YouTube video I found, and I won't be able to remember who made it. Maybe I can find it again. The guy in Canada who just bought a used car 10 years ago, and he kept every single receipt, just like religiously kept every single receipt, and then went through it at the end of 10 years. And it was way, way, way more than he thought it would be. Mm -hmm. It was around, I think it was, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was tens of thousands of dollars, even for a very cheap used car. Mm -hmm. And I know that every single time I bring this up online, I get a bunch of people saying, oh, I bought a Toyota for $12 in 1989, and I've only changed the oil twice or something like that. And I'm like, okay, buddy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that is not the reality of everybody else. Because I remember when I actually just realized that I sold my car 10 years ago on October 31st, the picture popped up in Google Photos. <laughs> and when I sold that car, I didn't expect it to be my last car ever. But yeah, we sold it. And then we moved back to Toronto. We were in Belgium at the time in Brussels. And then we moved back to Toronto. And when we moved, you know, moving is expensive. You've done it before. International mm -hmm. moves just suck your finances out because just everything, right? It's the move and all the paperwork and everything else. But also, you know, you even have to put a deposit down for the place that you're staying in. And so, you know, we had no money to buy a car when we moved to Toronto. And so we just didn't. We borrowed a car for a little bit, but then we realized like we could actually get around without it. And that was really kind of eye opening that even in Toronto, if we tried hard enough and lived in the right area, and that is the trick living in the right area. But we went without a car for a while and we were sort of saving up for a car. But the thing that made the difference for us, as you've suggested already, was when we decided to buy an electric cargo bike. And I am so glad we went for electric because we were looking at those cargo bikes because we had been to the Netherlands and loved the idea of it. And we had two kids. But the electric was really expensive. And we're like, oh, I don't know, you know, we're saving for a car. I don't know if we should really do this just for a bicycle. I'm so glad we did it because once we got that electric cargo bike, the number of times we needed a car were vanishingly small. And the car share program that existed in Toronto at the time covered those cases. And then once we did that, then we're like, hey, this is great. We're saving ridiculous amounts of money by riding around in an electric cargo bike. And we never ended up buying a car. And then, of course, we moved to the Netherlands and started a YouTube channel and the rest is history. But yeah, I mean, it was that electric cargo bike that caused us to never buy a car again. Mm -hmm. If the electric didn't exist in bike or cargo bike, I'd be a motorist, hands down. Absolutely. You know, the I'm not a cyclist. Are you a cyclist, Jason? No. <laughs> I am, I am not, not a cyclist either. <laughs> I'm not a cyclist. I actually really don't have much interest in bikes, to be quite honest. And I'm kind of fascinated with e-cargo bikes. This whole how it's unfolding is really cool. But outside of that, I don't give a damn about bicycles or cycling or recreational cycling or none of that stuff. I don't care. 
I just love being able to accomplish things without a damn car, draining my expenses, get from A to B. And, you know, occasionally I get that physical and mental benefit that you get from riding a bike when you're in the right places, right? Like right. sometimes you're like, oh, this is really nice. And other times you're like, Jesus Christ, this sucks. But, you know, whatever, <laughs> I'm saving some money. That's what keeps me going. And again, without that Bosch motor for me, that's what I have. I have an Urban Arrow with the Bosch cargo line. I got two batteries, right? Two batteries. Right. Yeah. Because I don't like plugging in and I get battery anxiety. I can just run errands all day. And like this morning, I'm going to the chiropractor and it's, what is it? It's November something now. And for whatever reason, it was like 16 Celsius outside and the wind was blowing and it just started pushing me back. And I said, nope, turned it up to turbo. And <laughs> that just cut through the bullshit. It cut through the excuses, right? Yeah. If I couldn't do that, if I had one trip to the chiropractor on a bike where I was fighting the wind and it was just killing me, that thing would be sold and I'd be back in a car. So e-bikes, man, it's the key to getting the lazy North Americans. And hey, I'm a North American and I'm pretty lazy out of a car and onto a bike. See, I can call everybody else lazy because, you know, admittedly I am too. So. <laughs> I completely understand you. I don't know if I would go back to driving just because I don't enjoy driving. I did a lot of driving in my life, like an awful lot. And I've driven mm -hmm. across North America eight times. And I feel like Ugh. I never want to do it again. Mm -hmm. I've driven so much, but I just love trams. And that's what I used to do when I lived in Toronto before we moved to Europe the first time. I used to take the streetcar all the time. And yeah, in Toronto, unfortunately, the streetcar kind of sucks. It gets stuck mm -hmm. in traffic. It gets stuck at red lights because it's so frustrating. It's just implemented wrong. But I'm not going to rant about trams again. <laughs> but there's just when you're sitting on a tram, I just sit and read a book. It's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I like it. You can look out the window. It's not like a subway where you're in the dark and everything. You can just hop off and you're there. You don't have to walk long distances when you get there because the stop is going to be near where you go. So, yeah, certainly if e-cargo bikes didn't exist, I would be living somewhere with trams. Mm -hmm. And if that wasn't possible, if I was still back in my hometown, guaranteed I'd have a car. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I remember being a kid and just I could not wait for my 16th birthday so that I could get a driver's license. And, you know, I've talked about this in videos before where when I got my driver's license, the first thing I did was drive to Wendy's and got a hamburger. Like... <laughs> Like, wow, I'm 16. I can go get a burger on my own. Exactly. It was literal freedom, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. so stupid. It's like, so dumb. I cannot believe that. Like, when I think back in retrospect, that it wasn't until I was 16 and could drive by myself that I finally felt any sort of freedom. It's, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just ludicrous. It is. It is. You know, I'm going to head off to a different path here. Yeah. So something that I think helps me reach other people or me have conversations with other people is that I was the opposition. I know what that's like. Like I know the rural mindset and I understand the suburban mindset. I think the suburbanites a little bit more loony than like the rural. I would agree with that. And I get influenced by where I'm at. So for example, just the other day we had to drive from here to the middle of Iowa and back. And doing that took me through country of where I'm from, you know, so there's farmers, there's people driving pickup trucks. And when I get back in that setting, I start to feel that again. And I start to 
enjoy it. Actually, when I'm back in that, I'm like, yep, got to go get my diesel truck. And I'm just going to live this life again. And my neighbor is going to be, you know, 1.6 kilometers down the road. Oh, I'm sorry, a mile down the road. <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be. And I'm going to go down to, you know, Bub's Diner. And this is going to be my life. Like, when I'm back in that, I feel it. Like, oh, I don't want anything to do with cities. Screw that. I don't want to talk about bike lanes. I don't want to ride a bike. I'll sell the stupid thing. Then I get back in a city and I'm like, okay, this isn't cool. Cities need to be different. We need to very much design our cities around people, not cars, not Billy Bob pickup truck, not, you know, the urban cowboy suburbanites and not, you know, Karen and a Wagoneer because she had one child. So I get it. I get all sides. Like I'm completely cool with those people in the country with their diesel truck as their commuter vehicle. I'm fine with it. I'm not going to start that war. Cool. Do your thing. The people in the suburbs who get a big SUV or, you know, have a truck. Now, I think that's a problem. That's stupid. I guess if they want to do that, that's fine. But they're just killing their finances. Then we get into a city and yeah, we got to have trams, bikes, walking, density, and hardly any private cars. So I get the mindset of everybody from the people who have never lived outside of a city to the people who hate setting foot in the city. And I can get why everybody feels the way that they do and why it's very much, you know, red versus blue or whatever, I don't know, team versus team, whatever. And it gets kind of nasty, but I feel like I can talk to both groups or all three groups or whatever you want to call it and sympathize or empathize, but also try to explain different sides of things. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think, well, you've lived it. I think you are certainly a better advocate for that stuff than I am. I've never been a good advocate. I tell this to people all the time, like, no, you do great advocacy. No, I don't. I make videos complaining <laughs> about shit. Haven't you been canceled like four times? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've lost count, man. Um, but <laughs> I was never a good advocate because I have a habit of like explaining like factually things to people. And when they don't get it, I'm like, you're a moron. So it's not very effective. But I think the thing is, I think from what you were saying, I could definitely see like urbanist city people and people who live very rural, like absolutely getting along. I could see them like carving out the space for each other. I think that works. And I mean, you see that in the Netherlands, too. It is quite rural. We don't have a lot of suburbs here. We don't really have the idea of suburbs. I mean, there are satellite towns and there are, of course, some suburbs of towns, but we don't have that suburban experience. It's pretty urban, and then it just stops. The cities just drop off, and then it's rural. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that actually comes from the fact that the Netherlands was very rural and did a lot of agriculture. And so there's a huge political power from the rural areas of the Netherlands that forced, like long before the Netherlands decided to become you know, safe streets, bike-friendly, all that stuff, there was pressure from the farms to keep the cities from encroaching on their territory. And so that is part of the reason why Dutch cities stayed so compact through the 20th century is that political pressure from the rural areas. And so we have the urban areas, we have the rural areas, but I feel like they generally, well, farmers protests aside, they generally <laughs> get along from an urban planning point of view anyway. I think the real problem comes from the suburbanites, the North America and car dependent suburbia. I think that's the one that's a problem, if you will. Like when I talk to people who are really and truly rural, they don't want to ride a bike and stuff, but they totally understand like they are self-sufficient people. They'll have 
probably their own septic tank on the property. They may even generate a lot of their own power. You know, they're going to be out there plowing their own driveway and their neighbor's driveways and stuff. They're taking care of each other, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the suburbs that just don't fit. They're the ones that are like, they want to live rural. They want to live on the big plot of land. Mm -hmm. They want to have the space between them and their neighbors. They want to be independent, but they want somebody else to plow their sidewalks and to pave their roads and the electricity all comes out and they don't want to pay for the full cost of that and everything else. And I think... They're the ones that I just have a hard time empathizing with because they're trying to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point because let's go back to trucks for a moment. <laughs> you just got to talk about trucks. <laughs> hey, wait, wait, let me grab my just cars hat. <laughs> so, shit, where was I going with that? So, <laughs> trucks as tools, not trucks for tools. So, right. When I drove a truck and the people that I was surrounded by that drove trucks, they were tools. We didn't look at them as like some glory wagon of, you know, hey, I'm going to go to Walmart, my truck and look like a badass up above everybody else. And that's my southern accent there. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Right. <laughs> Bang on there, man. No, no. They're tools. You don't see a bed cover on their truck. You see an open bed with like shit sliding around in it like there's a wrench that you know is sliding back and forth there might be some beer cans in there too but their beds all scratched up and they don't have them lifted because that takes away from utility you want to like climb a lifted truck to grab things or load things up in there no yeah. no 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 they're from the factory they're stock and they're tools the suburbanites are so easy to spot because they have, the, you know, the big, wide, fat tires that go out past the fenders. They lift the things up. They got a bed cover on. They're not tools. They're just being tools by driving them on the outskirts of a city into a city. And that just doesn't work. So, yeah, the suburban mindset around large vehicles is stupid. You want a ranch style, kind of like Hank Hill on the edge of a city? Well, you don't need a massive truck. You can accomplish shit like that with a, what, a wagon and a trailer maybe mm. and save a ton of money. Come on. I mean, that's something we all have in common. I mean, do we want to fork over all of our hard-earned income just to get from A to B or occasionally take home a small load of something from Lowe's or Home Depot on the weekend? No. No, you don't need to do that. Well, except that there are people who just want to show off, right? I mean, <laughs> we know that these people exist. Yeah. Some of them will drive Lamborghinis and some of them will drive, like, ridiculous SUVs. They're almost always men, too. Like, I always bring that up to my wife. Like, we'll see some jackass in a car or a truck acting ridiculous, and the windows are all tinted out, and I just look over to her and I say, that's a man. <laughs> like, you never see some, like, woman climbing out of, uh, I don't know, women are just far more level-headed than men. And can I say that? Did I piss people off by saying that? I don't know, probably. It's the internet. <laughs> but it is true that the people who drive dangerously and don't give a crap for other people very much do tend to be men. It's not exclusively mm -hmm. men, but right. that is something that the research does confirm. <laughs> I had a conversation once about trucks as this symbol of masculinity, and I was having this conversation with a trans woman and it was very, very funny. I'm not going to go into the whole thing here because I know I'll get canceled for the seventh time. <laughs> but she was saying that, like, you don't feel masculine enough. So you need the truck to mm -hmm. feel like that you need to present yourself as more masculine than you are. And uh -huh. I thought that was just so funny. And I can comment on that. Actually, I remember this was like a year before I moved to Brazil. 
I was so sick and tired of driving this big, it was like an F-350 driving this thing everywhere. And it seemed like I lived at the gas station, right? I was just constantly going there. And for whatever reason, I wound up buying a Volkswagen Golf, the tiniest thing I'd ever been in in my life. And as soon as I got it, I felt a little weird. You know, I was driving around town and this is going to sound stupid, but I felt like people were looking at me like, oh, look at that little man in his little Volkswagen Golf. And <laughs> honest to God, that's how I felt. And after a while, that went away. Could you imagine if you were on a bicycle, though? Oh, good. Well, then I had a DUI or lost my license or I was <laughs> True. too poor to buy a car. I started to change. Like, after a while, I'm like, man, parking this thing is easy. And like, when I would go to the gas station, I remember commenting to my wife. I was like, I had to go put gas in the Gulf. I hadn't been to the gas station in like a week. It was crazy. And then I'd filled up for next to nothing. I started to have this little change even back then thinking, man, maybe this is such a bad idea. You know, smaller vehicles are the way to go. Like I'm saving some money here. And before that, sure, I could acknowledge that fact, but it didn't mean anything to me. I just thought, well, the American way is just drive a pickup truck for everything. And <laughs> it's a mental illness. It does amaze me. Like, I get it if you're driving a pickup for reasons. But the thing that amazed me when I was filming that million subscriber video and where I went back to Toronto and read. Mm, that was good. <laughs> Thank you. What was the medicine you took? Was that copium? Copium. copium. That's that stuff. Some, yeah, that looked good. Got it right there. <laughs> Still, still got the props up here in the background. I know not a visual podcast, but <laughs> um, anyway, when I rented that truck, you know, I had a pretty low opinion of suburban truck owners to begin with. But when I went and actually rented that, so this was a, what is it? A Dodge Ram 1500 Warlock edition, I think it was, right? So Warlock. This, this, yeah, this truck, this is what they would call a luxury pickup truck. It's $80,000 truck. Right. Are those those Canadian dollars you're talking about? Yeah, it is Canadian dollars yeah, for what okay. it's worth. So, you know. That's because you're public health Canadian pesos. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get it out. Let's get it out. But it's an $80,000 truck, right? And I have driven in $80,000 cars before, you know, like in a BMW or a Mercedes or something that I've borrowed or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I got into this $80,000 truck and it was a piece of garbage. Mm -hmm. It was an absolute piece of garbage. It drove like a U-Haul. It handled like garbage. It was all just plastic, just clearly just stuck to metal. And mm -hmm. it was awful. And I'm riding around in this thing thinking Your like... Your copium was going everywhere. You're like, <laughs> you had it on that massive center know, coffee right? table. Copium was all over the place. Yeah, I needed to get it all over the place. It needed to be <laughs> but like very <laughs> within short reach. Uh, <laughs> I needed a lot of copium to get through that weekend, man. Let me tell you. But the thing was, it was just such a piece of crap. Mm. And I thought this was obvious within minutes of driving it, which is like when you buy a vehicle, especially an $80,000 vehicle, you do a test drive, right? So how is it that somebody can get into that thing and drive it and still think, yes, I want to spend $80,000 on this thing? It just boggles the mind. Like you have to have been so convinced by the culture, the marketing, I don't know what, but you have to be at such a level of quite honestly delusion to get into a vehicle like that, to test drive it and then say, yes, I am going to spend $80,000 on this. You are. You're exactly right, Jason. It's not a like, do I want to spend $80,000 on this? It's like, okay, this is my only option to be 
a real man in North America and live the life I want to live, I guess I have to buy this. Like, ah, geez, that's really how it comes off. Or at least that's how it used to come off to me. It was like, well, I need a pickup truck because I want to be like everybody else and it'll make me feel good. And I have no choice. I have to buy it. And yeah, it's a weird mental thing. It's wild to me. Yeah. It's absolutely wild to me. But the other thing that's wild to me, of course, is that I know that if I hadn't left my hometown of London, Ontario, Canada, I probably would have been exactly the same. I probably would have been driving around, maybe not a pickup truck, but at very least I would have been driving around in a big SUV because why wouldn't I? Well, and it doesn't feel weird. I mean, whenever your margins are massive, when you're in one of those vehicles, you feel like, oh, I belong. Yeah, this fits in here. Yeah. It's not until you put it in a context of a properly designed city that you start to think, am I the problem? Okay. <laughs> I wish people would think, am I the problem more often? Those things are appearing in Amsterdam now, and it's entirely through, they don't actually pass EU safety standards. It's entirely through a loophole that was designed to be able to import, like, rare vehicles like for instance you know specialty handicap vehicles and things like that so they could bypass the safety standards and they're using that loophole to import these bloody dodge rams mm -hmm. and you see them in amsterdam and they're insane it's the context of the design so back in august i had family visiting from brazil and we took them to chicago to get a big city american experience and chicago's awesome but their infrastructure still sucks for the most part because it's very car oriented a couple times I was ordering an Uber, like, because my mother-in-law is kind of old, has some mobility issues, so we couldn't walk her too much. So I'd order an Uber to move five people around. And a couple times I ordered an Uber Black, which what would show up as one of the massive Lincoln Navigators or the Chevy yeah. Suburbs. I mean, yeah. urban tanks. It would show up. And I did notice that as we rode around, I was sitting up in the front. And you know what? I didn't feel like that vehicle was too big for the streets in downtown Chicago. That's I wild. felt like it fit. And that's when I thought, well, this is wrong. Like if I am sitting in this vehicle feeling like, nah, I'm fine being shuttled around in this thing in a major city downtown. We've got a major problem with the street design. Yeah. If I'm thinking that. That does tell you that the lane widths are way too wide. The streets are too big. You know, that reminds me, though, when I was driving that Dodge Ram, or rather, when Just Cars was driving going that back Dodge to your Ram. Ram. I know, man, I just can't stop talking about it. I just, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I first got in it, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? This is supposed to be a joke. I'm going to literally kill somebody. Like, this thing is dangerous. And I couldn't see anything. And there was the blind spot. And I was backing up and like going like, how am I going to do this? But after about 24 hours of driving it, I suddenly felt really comfortable and I was driving mm -hmm. just fine. And then it occurred to me, I should be a lot more concerned about this. Like suddenly within a day, I was just like driving around like anything else, like speeding up like I would in a car and everything. And I had completely forgotten that those blind spots were there that I originally had when I was back at another driveway when I picked it up. And that was really, really frightening to me. I mean, I didn't drive anywhere near downtown when I was doing that video. I was out in proper suburbia where the lane widths are huge and everything's huge and everything's far away and that sort of thing. But it was still creepy to me how I knew what those blind spots were. I was aware of them when I first got into the vehicle, but within a very short period of time, I just felt fine. It's like I didn't even notice the blind spots were there, but they were still there. I couldn't see in front of the hood, 
but I didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. And that was actually really kind of creepy to me. Yeah. And it's why so many people in North America, I'm going to wear out that name, keep saying it over and over. So many people who drive these massive vehicles in North America, they don't see a problem with it. And it's kind of not their fault. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're just so used to it and operating those vehicles in the designed environment that it feels right and it feels fine and there's no perceived threat to other people. The only thing you're ever concerned about is getting into a wreck with, or I'm sorry, getting into an accident with another vehicle your size or bigger, right? So yep. it's the vehicle arms race of mine's bigger, you'll die, I won't. And that's their only concern. They're not concerned about running over some kid who's chasing a ball out into the street or, you know, some dirty cyclist trying to get his exercise <laughs> right right along their strode with a nice little thin line of white paint between you and them. So, yeah, it's kind of not their fault. I mean, they've just adapted to the environment in which they exist. And that's because of our leaders and our engineers. And, yeah, I point a lot of fingers at vehicle design manufacturers too i mean i think that's absolutely justified for sure i mean i talked about this in my suvs video that look the reason they exist is because car manufacturers make more money promoting them that's really it mm -hmm. that's where all the marketing came from that's where all the push for them came from that's ah, really frustrating we could talk about this forever i know we could and i will have you back another time but we're getting near the end of a typical podcast length so there's just kind of one thing i guess i wanted to talk hold on about. jason Yes, we are going to have to do this again because I was going to go off on a tangent. You know what uh -oh. I was doing before I came up here to fire up the computer? I was downstairs watching YouTube. Have you ever heard of Noel Phillips? I don't think so. Eh, travel blogger. Anyway, good channel, by the way. All right. I was just watching his latest video. Took a train from the northern part of Italy all the way to the south. The train boards a tram, by the way. The entire freaking train gets on it. Sorry, not a tram, a ferry. A ferry, yeah. The train yeah. goes on a ferry. They used to have that going up to Copenhagen. It was awesome. Crosses a body of water and does all of this. The length of Italy gets on a ferry, crosses a body of water in 20 hours. And so I was kind of fired up. I was pissed off. So I was downstairs thinking about the garbage situation we have with Amtrak. And yeah, you know, I was ready to go in that and piss off all the Amtrak gatekeepers and everything. But we can do that another time. Yeah, I think we should definitely have <laughs> you back on to complain about Amtrak sometime. I don't know if I have ever been on Amtrak in my life, now that I think about it. I've certainly been on like Caltrain and things like that. Via rail, of course. But Well, I think that you should definitely use some of that Patreon money to go take an Amtrak trip. Just because... <laughs> You know how like sometimes some people like to trash the Netherlands even though they'd never left the U.S.? Yeah. Well, before you say anything about Amtrak in the future, just take an Amtrak ride and then you can be like, hey, I dotted my I's, crossed my T's, I rode Amtrak. Now I can talk about it. That's fair. I actually have never complained about Amtrak on my channel, but kept my complaints to VRL, which, I mean, there's plenty to complain about there. They weigh your damn luggage before you get on a train, so, you know. Really? Yeah, they you have do. to stand in line, too, to, like, board, like, an airplane? <laughs> you do. You stand in line, and then they come along with this portable scale. They only weigh your bags if they look too big. Weigh but, your bags yeah, for they a train? Your bags. Yeah, they do. They weigh your bags it. for a train. Well, okay. Do I have to explain this? Okay, I'll really quickly explain this, because now that I've mentioned it, listeners are going to be like, wait, 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 wait yeah, a second. Yeah, wait we're going to, like, Weigh your bags for a train? Yeah, so the idea is that, like most countries, actually, this exists in Europe as well, there are worker safety laws that say you can't lift more than a certain amount unassisted, right? And I believe that is oh. 
50 pounds. Let's say it's 50 pounds, 23 kilos, I think it is. But anyway, mm-hmm. 50 pounds in Canada that a worker cannot be asked to lift more than 50 pounds at their job without some sort of assistance. And so Via Rail takes that to mean that because they don't have level boarding, because you have to go up multiple steps into a train because it's so freaking backwards and out of date, you need to haul yourself and your luggage up into the train. Now, not all people are able to do that necessarily, which means that an employee may need to help with that process and may need to lift it onto the shelves within the train as well. And so therefore, they don't want their employees to have to lift more than 50 pounds of a And therefore, case. we have to weigh there, everybody. Well, we have to weigh everyone onto a damn bag. train. And then, if your bag weighs more than fifty pounds, you have to check it in, and then they use the baggage carts to bring it to the baggage car and lift it in, assisted. So it's effectively mm. a very interesting reading of labor law. Now we have the same thing all over Europe, and technically. The employees aren't supposed to help people lift bags over a similar weight here in Europe, but they don't weigh your bags because they're your bags and you take them onto mm-hmm. the train and it's your responsibility to get them onto the train. My God, if you brought them there, you can handle <laughs> you, it. You bring your damn. But they also have, if not level boarding, then at least close to level boarding where you might have to go up one step. It's not like where you have to go up five steps to get up into a via rail like it's back in the 19th century or something. I'm pretty sure it was better back then. I mean, geez, people were bringing <laughs> Well, trunks. the trains were certainly more frequent. <laughs> right? You were traveling for three months. You brought trunks. Nobody's weighing yeah. your trunk. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody's weighing your trunk. But then, of course, children are working in coal mines, too. So, you know, labor laws were a bit different back then. Yeah, but they can lift more than 23 kilograms. <laughs> it depends on the kid, I guess. But, you know, and maybe canceled, maybe we'll talk about <laughs> child, child exploitation, work, child exploitation yeah, okay. on another episode. <laughs> I do want to ask you before we finish up here, though, do you plan to come back to the Netherlands anytime soon? And do you think you'd ever live in the Netherlands? Yeah, yeah, I definitely plan on coming back, but I'm running into a problem. My wife wants to go see other countries. What? Right? Why? What are you talking <laughs> There are other so, countries? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, so wait she, a second. She wants to go to like Portugal and I want to go to Finland and Norway. And so, you know, travel budgets being what they are just kind of interferes. But I haven't been there in a long time. But ever since I was last there to like now, I have like all these people and institutions saying, when you're here, get a hold of us and we'll have you come by. We'll go cycling. And See, now you're an influencer. Oh, shit. Where's my money? Where's my money? Because <laughs> this whole situation only costs me money. <laughs> That's the way it yeah, goes. So, yeah, I plan to one of these days. Like, probably what I'll do is I'll wait till she gets pulled over to Switzerland because she'll have to go there for work. And then I'll just land in France, grab a train, come up, visit people in the Netherlands, and then train over to Switzerland and just make it awesome. Like, I'm super into trains. Like, I like trains more than bikes to be quite honest. Yeah, me too, man. Yes, I'll be back. Would I live in the Netherlands? I would love to, but it's too much work. And to be honest, someday, whenever we stop what we're doing here in the U.S., we're probably going back to Brazil, be closer to family, and also have some of that socialist health care, you know, because we don't want to go broke as we get into our old age and some things start to break down. Imagine that. (laughs) All right. Well, when you are in the Netherlands, make sure you give me a call and we'll meet up. Absolutely. And we won't even ride a bike. We can just like ride trams. Yeah, we're and trams and trains, man. Drink coffee. And... It's, you know, it's not just bikes. <laughs> Damn bloody <laughs> That's cyclists. That's true.
So anyway, thanks for coming out. I will have you on again sometime because I know that we could talk about this stuff forever. Yep. But thanks so much. Is there anything you want to promote before we go? Absolutely not, because I'm running on fumes doing the American feature thing as it is anyway. So no promotions. Yeah. Don't follow me. I don't, don't need watch. No trolls. Don't subscribe. <laughs> yeah, I've got enough Bitcoin and pornography bots following me right now that enough's enough. So yeah, no, I'm good. Don't follow American Feetzer. Just go yell at Jason. Go yell at you every time you say something that upsets people. I think I have enough of that too, but all right, fine. <laughs> I'll take it for you. Just this time. <laughs> good to talk to you, Brandon. All right, you too, Jason. That's all we have on the agenda for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to it almost as much as we enjoyed making it. I really enjoy talking to other content creators about what they find interesting. And a lot of the people I have on this podcast, I met since joining Nebula. Nebula is the subscription streaming service created by and for educational content creators and the people who love their content. Nebula has all sorts of educational content from videos to podcasts to classes by your favorite creators, as well as Nebula Originals, which are high budget productions. Honestly, Nebula is such a great platform and I'm so happy for my content to be available there. If you use our special link, which is nebula.tv agenda, you'll get a discount off an annual membership, which comes to only $30 a year, which I think is a fantastic deal. So check out Nebula at nebula.tv agenda and see if there's something of interest to you. At the very least, you'll be able to hear every episode of The Urbanist Agenda a little bit earlier than everyone else so you can get the inside scoop on what we're plotting and scheming. Thanks again for listening, and maybe next time you'll be listening on Nebula.